500 years ago, a German Augustinian monk, Martin Luther, nailed 95 theses on the wall of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. As we have saw and uh, we have seen in, in, in the video, it was to reform, but the church took it as a major threat to the authority and not only to the Pope, but the church as well. The question that we're asking this morning is, as we're starting this five solar series, uh, what were the causes? There are primary, two primary problems that ignited Reformation, Protestant Reformation in 16th century. Of course, the bravery and courage of Martin Luther ignited the whole movement. But as we look at the entire the decade or even the whole uh, 30, 40, 50 years of Reformation days, we see two major problems. The first one is a moral corruption of the church. The church not only oversaw religious services, but the Pope, basically the church, owned so much of the land in Europe and had a monolithic political, economic, religious, even military power. Obviously, much of abuse and, and exploitation was happening. And one of which is the selling of indulgences. Indulgence is just nothing more a piece of paper with the signature of the Pope which grants remission, reducing the time that each saint will spend time in Catholic theology, purgatory. They're not righteous enough to go to heaven right away, but because of their faith, they didn't go to hell. And then in between time, purgatory, what are they doing? They're paying the, the cost of their pain, their sins. The penance was there. Initially, it was granted to anyone who wants to buy the piece of paper for the remission of their sins so that they could spend less time in purgatory when they die. But a few years prior to this, the Pope granted and extended to not only the living, but to those who are already dead, the loved ones. And this was a means to raise the big um, Catholic uh, events or, or, or cathedral. And the famous saying the marketing strategy back then was called that once a coin into the coffer clings, a soul from purgatory springs. So when Martin Luther heard this, even though he was a professor at a theology at school, a seminary, and as a monk, 
but he has a pastoral heart for his people. And this was a trigger point of his writing up 95 criticism against the moral corruptions to begin with. The second is a doctrinal corruption of the church. Unlike uh, Protestants and you know, the, the evangelical church now, uh, they advocated dual authority. Technically speaking, they call it a tripod authority, uh, scripture and tradition, the oral tradition, uh, the church tradition, and the magisterium, which is the official teaching of the church starting with the pope and the bishops. So basically, uh, scripture and tradition, tradition of the past and tradition even now. But oftentimes, the pope's authority superseded the authority of scripture. Hence, the, all, a lot of this wacky deviation from the teachings of the scripture. A doctrine of indulgence and doctrine of penance, justification by plus works. Even nowadays, a Catholic's point of view of justification is that faith is necessary, grace is necessary, but works by sacraments, by doing good things, is necessary. Uh, Lord's Supper, communion, transubstation, what does that mean? The, the bread and wine becomes literally Christ's body and blood. And Martin Luther basically, absolutely not. Um, and the monopoly of reading scripture Latin was the, the language of the intellectuals back then. But normal average Joe and Mary didn't speak. In German, Germany, for example, um, and maybe some of you grew up in Catholic church as well, and the priests were going through the scripture and reciting liturgy. All that was everything was in Latin. And to do anything in German or anything in English will be undermining the holy scripture that they say. But it's a monopoly. And as a result of Reformation, as you probably already know, Martin Luther translated New Testament into German. William Tyndale completed New Testament for English. Later it became the King James the th uh, line of that uh, Bible as well. So these two problems, corruptions were there. But if we look at the principles of Reformation, it is actually called the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. But this is not just for then, but for now as well. So five-part series that we're going to do, actually, theological teaching. And then today, we're going to focus on Scripture alone, sola scriptura. And next week, 
uh, we'll focus on Christ alone, Solus Christus. Uh, Wade will be speaking on that. The following week, following week, A. Park will speaking will be speaking on grace alone, sola gratia. And the fourth part, uh, I'll be touching on faith alone, sola fide. And then it ends with the fifth and final part, God's glory alone, <coughs> soli deo gloria. If you look at the whole five part, there are two things kind of emerge as prominent. Not that those two are more important than the other, but for example, why is scripture alone is the beginning part? Uh, it is often called the formal cause of the Reformation. Why is it a formal cause? Because it creates forms for other things. Formal principle of the Reformation foundational principle from which everything comes. And faith alone, justification by faith and faith alone, so la fide was called a material cause of the Reformation. But and yet, if you look at the rest of other things, it's all connected, interconnected. Our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. The whole thing is a foundational faith of the Reformation. Even nowadays, uh, Bible-believing church, even the word evangelicals are now tainted in a way, but in general, the Protestant movement, as long as the people are Bible-believing church, evangelical church, are rooted on these five things. Let's begin with Scripture alone today. We're asking three things about Scripture alone. Very simple focus as you follow through this sermon. What is sola scriptura? What is scripture alone? What are the principles? What is it? What is not sola scriptura as well? Number two, why is sola scriptura still so important and relevant in today's world? Isn't it just for Luther's time, the 16th century, for John Calvin and John Knox? Number three, in what Practical ways can we uphold sola scriptura to reform today's churches and culture and trends? And obviously, to reform the church means to reform ourselves first. Let's begin with what is and what is not sola scriptura. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is our principal verse, a text for the, for the day. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, 
and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So first of all, sola scriptura means the scripture alone is the inerrant authority for our faith and conduct. Why is it inerrant? Because it is inspired. Inspired means God breathed out. The ESB and NIV translates this close to the original Greek. Why? Because in our days, we could think about it as something uh, that we are familiar with rather than what true inspiration is. For example, when I was proposing uh, to Kate, I got inspired. I wrote a poem, three stanza poem. I got inspired so much that I wrote and uh, it's in my office if you, get, if you want to take a look at it. <laughs> All night long I was just engulfed with uh, delight and anticipation. I should have slept some because it was really hard the following day. But when all scripture is inspired by God, that's, that doesn't mean these mere men was just thinking about something and inspiration came. Just good feelings and, you know, the breakthrough of this, the writing, writer's block came off. No, it wasn't that. God breathed out. Without infringing the person's background, personality, and, and literary style, God spoke through that person, which became inspired. Because God spoke, it is the infallible, meaning trustworthy, perfect word of God, which also means it is inerrant. No errors whatsoever. The word of God. I know there are liberals who does not believe Bible is the word of God at all. That didn't change much. But what's been changing several decades is that it's just a little bit of drift of this. But we need to hear Martin Luther's words himself. Basically, the reason for he could stand on scripture, he says, Pope's error, Pope's error, counsel's error, but the word of God cannot, does not, will not err. And if you go to a Bible building church like us, like ours, most of people, if not 100 person here, do not have a problem accepting that. Yes, God, you know, I believe that the Bible is God's word. Bible has the authority. But think about these words. The Bible is actually God breathed out, infallible and inerrant word of God. Sola Scriptura also means Scripture alone is the sufficient authority for our faith and conduct. Sufficient in what ways? Sufficient for teaching spiritual 
spiritual truth, including salvation, sufficient for reproof and correction, and sufficient for training in righteousness, and sufficient for equipping for every good work in spiritual maturity. In other words, all the things that we need in our spiritual growth and church life to glorify God, to enjoy Him forever. Scripture is sufficient. That's what it means to have uphold the sola scriptura. Scripture is not only inerrant authority, sufficient authority, but also Scripture alone is the final authority for our faith and conduct. Its authority supersedes all other authorities. And it has the supreme authority over all Christian faith and conduct. And it alone has the final rule for the church as well as for individual believers. I know many of you are thinking, I, I already know that. Uh, I think I believe that. The scripture alone is inerrant, sufficient, and final authority. But we need to hear the people who are about to die or who have already died. And this is Martin Luther's word. In 1517, he nailed the 95 theses on the wall, on the door of Castle Church. And just a few years later, 1521, he was threatened, he was wanted by the Catholic Church, and this was a last chance. Charlie, uh, Charles V, the emperor, young emperor, decided to give him hearing. As you saw in the video, Frederick the Wise, he was just going all out to make that happen. Just imagine that he traveled far away and the 200 dignities, the, the princes of uh, German and Roman, uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church's priests and monks were there. And he's on trial. The tons of his books are in front of him. And they start asking questions. Martin Luther was going at the content of each book. And they got frustrated. Give us a straight answer. Yes or no. Will you recant what you have written? And submit to the authority of the Pope. And that in real life, just think about this. Many have died. Anyone who stood up against an excommunicated by the church. Who died on fire. They were killed. Their heads were chopped up. So I think there was a human moment. Martin Luther said, I, I, I need more time. Charles V gave him 24 hours. And think about the sleepless night. 
And the following day, he stood up and said this, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear vision, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor wise to to go against conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. It was noted that the whole thing was in Latin, except here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. Help me, God help me, amen. He, saw, he, he, he said it in, in German. Here is sola scriptura. And later on, Martin Luther developed justification by faith and faith alone, which became the material cause and principle. And people like John Calvin and John Knox, uh, Ulrich Zungli in, in Swiss, they all participated in this reformation of the doctrine. And back then, because of political power of the the Roman Empire and Roman Catholicism, it combined with political social reformation as well. It was just invigorating just to read. The past several weeks, I've been reading so much. And as I am standing here, Forker Road in front of me is that whether we would approach this series with a historical perspective lesson, which is fascinating, yet it kind of helps us to escape from our own responsibility. I decide to take the second route. We want to apply to ourselves. The Reformation for now is also absolutely needed. We're going to take a look at that. But for now, let's clarify some common misunderstandings even among evangelicals. First of all, sola scriptura does not mean that scripture contains all truth of every kind while it contains all truth necessary for our salvation and spiritual life. Well-meaning people in the church history, even in U.S. history, took this uh, deviation from sola scriptura and misunderstood, and they became anti-intellectual. They didn't want to send kids their school to their school. They didn't want to read anything. But if you really think about it, the written word of God is a special revelation. And there's another kind of revelation. 
general revelation revealed in nature. This special revelation <coughs> is inerrant, infallible. But general revelation is God's inerrant, infallible revelation as well. Except that without spe special revelation, we cannot know the knowledge of our Savior. Hence, no salvation without special revelation scripture. Secondly, it does not mean scripture teaches everything we want to know about God or our, our spiritual life or the coming age about the kingdom of God in heaven. While scripture teaches everything we need to know about God. So one one group of people who became entirely intellectual and started not to read anything besides the um, scripture, which is not a really true concept of sola scriptura, and the other group <coughs> kept on reading into scripture what they want to know about God. And even what one of the Reformation in the Middle Age and from these reformers were so clear about from Scripture the images, the beautiful art, of the big cathedral. Uh, without that, you know, the going to Europe is no fun, right? But basically, they decided they look at the scripture, it is absolutely wrong. Thou shalt not. You shall not uh, worship any other god and even idols and any images. So reformers are known as having, having nothing around. Not even picture of Jesus. And even in our church, in that tradition, our, our church is empty you know, with uh, no banners, no no beautiful pictures. Not because we could use some beautiful pictures too, but you know. But reading into scripture what they want to know, God must be this way, and uh, end up leading to wrong path. And the third misunderstanding is very important. A lot of evangelicals have this tendency: sola scriptura does not mean solo scriptura, me and the Bible alone. The presumption is that scripture is the only authority. There are no authority, which means I could take my Bible and go to my backyard, just read and understand whatever I want and decide not to hear anybody else. That's actually not sola scriptura. There is value in church tradition, church leaders, theologians, community of believers discerning the word of God together. And if we become so individualistic, ironically what's happening is we elevate individual individuality to the infallible source 
rather than tradition. That I become the final decider what is right and what is true, which is absolutely dangerous. Because of that, there are two quotes that will be helpful. Arsis Brown writes, although tradition does not rule or our interpretation, it does guide, us, guide it. If upon reading a particular passage you have come up with an interpretation that has escaped the notice of every other Christian for 2,000 years or has been championed by universally recognized heretics, chances are pretty good that you had better abandon your interpretation. In pre, uh, postmodern world, I have seen this over and over. The young, hip pastor will stand up and say, guys, I've never seen this. This is really, really revolutionary new truth, which means for 2,000 years, nobody saw it. He pulled out this truth. I'm not sure that was really contextually consistent uh, good hermeneutics, but taking up on that as if he found the treasure out of nowhere. We could do that too. It's very, very dangerous to do that. If, if you look at those people who are called the cultic leaders, they tend to have these, the new revelation. Secondly, on the other side, Westminster Confession of Faith says this. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either express, expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or the traditions of man. We are to humbly go to the Scripture, seek communal interpretation from the, the past and the current, and understand the Bible humbly. Receive God's word openly. Not individualistically. Not elevating the tradition of man as equal as scriptural authority. A couple more things here. Why sola scripture is still so important in today's world. Uh, we're going to go back to Second Timothy, a few verses prior to what we just read. Timothy chapter, Second Timothy chapter three, verse thirteen through fifteen. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned. And have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from, your child, from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, i.e. scripture, 
which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, when we look at the five solas, and even starting with this sola scriptura, it is not the yesterday's glorious accomplishment that we just look at it and appreciate our past. I contend when the sola scriptura now in our culture, in our churches more than ever. Just past 10 years, I've sensed that deeply. Um, some of you already know how this church started. Uh, those of you who are a new, relatively new, need to know this. I had a shipwreck riding the current of culture, very exciting, one of the fastest growing church in America. And I became so disillusioned about this whole movement. And then in it, my turning point was my view of scripture. And I will explain further a little bit. It's not the static doctrinal statement has been changed. If you ask me, do you believe this statement and has it so much changed? Not much at all. But the, my view of scripture, how role of scripture has changed and I embrace sola scripture strongly. And as a result, our church embraces sola scriptura with all our heart. And three quick reasons why we need sola scripture in today's world. Number one, I, as I just said it, by default, we drift away from scripture and God-centered view of life. If we drifted away from scripture, what centrally what scripture teaches is God-centered view and perspective, the worldview, and the actual God-centered life. That doesn't happen. But nobody, by default, drift toward to scripture without any intentionality and deliberate spiritual disciplines all of a sudden, you are just in, uh, engulfed and, and saturated with the word of God. That by default, we drift away. Have you experienced that? When you go to, uh, you know, when I came from Texas and uh, I was a youth pastor at this small church, <clears throat> beach day, Huntington Beach, um, I looked at <clears throat> the number of life, uh, lifeguard station. And, you know, I was a swimmer ever since I was a kid. So I uh, explored a little bit. But the wave took me so far away, I couldn't find a number. Counting the number, how did I get here? Just enjoying the wave, I just drifted away so much. It took me several minutes to finally get back. That happens by default as well. Number two reason 
Without it, we are lured by worldly wisdom and ways, resulting in the low view of Scripture that leads us to compromise our faith with the world. One of the saddest things that I participated, because I saw several pastors under me, uh, oversaw, and, and I, as their, as their supervising pastor, um, I was very much interested in each person's performance. The recommended books were from Harvard Management books, uh, leadership group books, and TED Talks. In our uh, staff meetings, a lot of times, the Bible was quickly mentioned, but it will always <coughs> go to the latest leadership group's quote, an article. Oh, we were very evangelical church. And sadly enough, that's what's going on in our days. And do you know that it's some, something that is very pleasing to my ear, but at the same time saddening my heart? One of the things that uh, newcomers at Crossway mentioned, the typical question, what do you like, the, what do you like most about Crossway? Without hesitation, many of them had said to me, maybe some of you already said and sitting here too, you guys teach Bible. Every church has to teach the Bible? It is so true, isn't it? There are a lot of churches that you would go to, Bible mention, but it's just a nice speech from, from the preacher. And church is actually growing because of all that. The question is the sufficiency of Scripture. We do not have much confidence in Scripture. It's going to be boring. It's not going to be relevant. We need to look for things that is, has felt needs. For example, how do you revolutionize your romance in your life, in your, in your married life? And let's pull some Bible verses with some psychological teaching that is very popular on the books of Barnes and Noble. And yet, those people, those churches are Bible-believing Christians and Bible-believing church. And thirdly, I'm positively speaking, why do we need this? With it, we can experience the spiritual vitality and power of God's word daily as Christ's church as well as Christ's follower. One of the most thrilling things that I love about our church not only the way that I teach and preach has changed quite a bit, um, the thirsty heart that I see, especially in the beginning of our 
our church was just so delightful. I thought I said something wrong. I was just simply teaching from Sermon on the Mount. And I see tears in people's cheeks because of conviction of the Spirit. And it's not just sadness. The tears of joy comes from these people who are so thirsty. And I'm, pray I'm praying that that will continue on in our church. I am not really joking when, when we are serious about doing Jesus, church Jesus' way, to choosing the way of the crosses, cross as our way. And we might grow very, very slowly, incrementally slowly. But I would not do it any other way. We saw the need for reformation back then. Let me introduce, before I conclude with some application, the need for today. James Montgomery Voice, I wrote a book on his five solas, and he's a pastor and uh, theologian. I, I wish I could quote page after page from his book. He's, he's the reason why he decided to teach him these five solas in, in his teach, in his church. And he writes in his book, Evangelicals are not heretics, at least not consciously. If we ask whether the Bible is the authoritative and inerrant word of God, most will answer affirmatively. affirmatively. At least if the question is, is asked in the traditional ways. Is the Bible God's word? Of course. All evangelicals know, know that. Is it authoritative? Yes, that too. Inerrant? Most evangelicals will affirm inerrancy. But many evangelicals have abandoned the Bible all the same simply because they do not think it is ad adequate for the challenges we face today. They do not think it is sufficient for winning people to Christ in this age so they turn to felt needs sermons or inter entertainment or signs and wonders instead. They do not think the Bible is sufficient for achieving Christian growth, so they turn to therapy groups or Christian counseling. They do not think it is sufficient for making God's will known, so they look for external signs or revelations. They do not think it is adequate for changing our society. So they establish evangelical political groups and work to elect Christian congressmen, senators, presidents, and other officials. They seek change by power, politics, and money. Doesn't it ring true? Do we need reformation? Do we need sola scriptura? Absolutely, yes. So I was willing to abandon hours I was reading and materials that I developed. I thought I would be able to teach that. Maybe there will be some other time. 
I think I could do several messages on that. But I think it's worth it to focus on our application. Here's number one. How to uphold the sola scriptura to reform today's church, beginning with ourselves. We are to uphold sola scriptura by elevating our view of scripture as, a final, as our final authority in all issues of our faith and conduct. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 to 25. Apostle Peter writes, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls but the word of, God, word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. What would it mean to elevate our view of Scripture? And why is that necessary? Because just past 10 years, my pastor friends and their churches deciding on some social issues and controversial issues which 20 years ago it would be almost impossible for them to choose that and because of their low view <coughs> scripture really didn't affect them that much while they're believing the authority of the scripture. <coughs> it will determine everything else we believe, everything else we do as church as well. So we ought to be really vigilant against the drifting away from scripture. Because the drifting away happens like a ripple effect. You know what ripple effect is, right? If I jump from here to way over there, I don't want to move that much. But if I move this this much, and this much, not bad. And all of a sudden, with, even within our church, the scripture will be closed. And who is going to be teaching and preaching Maybe someone who is very articulate. Someone not like me, like tongue-tied. And some, sometimes I get frustrated with myself. My, my thoughts are here, but my words are not catching up. And I, I want to be humorous, and I want to be witty. But that's far from... I, I gave up on that. Whenever I gave up, you guys laugh. You know? So that... Let me ask you, point blank. I know you believe the Bible is the word of God. What place does scripture have in your decision making, in your worldview? Are you on the top or someone who, whom you uh, respect so much or some source you respect so much? Is it on the top? And Bible is second or third or fourth to reform our church, to reform 
ourselves, we need to reform our view. Secondly, I mean, before that, this is what it looks like practically speaking. If scripture is God's word, then it alone has the final authority over, I just list down some things that I could think of. Let's start with uh, human opinions or authorities, including spiritual writers, spiritual uh, communicators, and well-known pastors that you uh, like so much, celebrities, or including some experts. Does the scripture have a final authority over them? How about culture and trends? The latest trend in, our, in, in Christian culture, there is a latest trend. But even, even to a point that in order to attract the young seekers, the pastor has to dress some way, definitely not like me. People think that I, I wear the same thing. I have the same shirt, several shirts, same color. Okay? <laughs> Final authority over pragmatism or consumerism. The, if you go to you know, conferences, Christian conferences these days, a lot of it is based on best practices for growing church. And we broke so many of them. I mean, intentionally broke so many of them. It doesn't work. In, in our, I mean, I know it doesn't work to attract people and a lot of times I think I scare people off just preaching too long or preaching without it even softening it and sugarcoating anything. Final authority over majority or convention. Most Americans think this way these days. Not 20 years ago, but today. It is the main stream. Final authority over experience and feelings. I'm not against charismatic movement. I'm a continuationist, which means that our church believes the supernatural the gifts of the Holy Spirit continually exist. But I am against the experientialism, looking for looking for new wonders and signs and, and experiences of if I really experienced it, it must be, it cannot be false, which is also the extra biblical signs and wonder. God spoke to me. Whenever people say God spoke to me, be very, very careful. Revolution, revelation, special revelation is, is in this scripture. And Jesus himself is anyone who adds this or, or takes away will be accounted for. And that's why Book of Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, their writings, or anyone who says, God spoke to me, so you have to participate in raising $6 million dollars. Number two, um, 
we are to uphold sola scriptura by anchoring ourselves in scripture as our sufficient authority. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 to 4, Apostle Paul writes to his young protege and spiritual son, Timothy, young pastor. He urges, verse 2, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off it into myth. This verse sounds like our time, isn't it? To prevent subtle drift. Scripture must be our anchor. We need to be anchored in Scripture. Otherwise, we're going to, by default, drift away. To anchor ourselves in Scripture, we must be, we must trust fully in the sufficiency of the Scripture. In order to for us to trust fully in the scripture of sufficiency, we must be deliberate, intentional in embracing all scripture, Torah, scriptura, as a whole counsel of God for us. And that's why our series lasts several, I mean, this Davis series uh, is coming to November, will be one year. We'll continue on for probably February. Not because I'm proud of just doing the long, long series, but there is a value in of embracing the whole counsel of God. Why do we preach? Why do we read Zechariah? Because it is there. It's part of the word of God. But in our modern mindset, we keep on asking, how is it relevant to me? If it doesn't speak to my own personal felt needs today, I don't read, I don't want to read Zechariah. That would not be anchoring ourselves. Did you know that during Reformation time, Martin Luther, with that enthusiasm, he started doing exposition in Psalm, Hebrews, Galatians, and John Calvin, books after books after going through the scripture. Sometimes far longer than in our series. They're going through the scripture. So some of you are not really comfortable with the structure at our church. We have a quiet time list that everybody goes through. Why do I have to? I like Philippians. I want to stay in Philippians. Uh, nobody is twisting your arm. Go ahead. It's No quiet time is... I mean... Some quiet time in whatever you like is better than no quiet time. But what happens is the Bible becomes like a refrigerator. You open it and you take ice cream. And there are some good things, uh, broccoli that you have to eat for the health of your body. But you close it. Philippians, I like Philippians. Uh, John Chapter 3, oh, I like it. Some of Psalms, I like it. 
Zechariah, oh, then I don't eat broccoli. <laughs> oh, I, I think maybe you need to hear it. One of the tremendous joy differences I have in ministry now is going through the books of the Bible. So I, I am really thankful for your patience with me because I, a lot of times I come, come up and say, I think this is the most important message that I ever delivered. You said it last week, right? Because <laughs> I feel like God spoke to me. It, it just My heart is on fire because of the word of God. In, in light of that, let me say a few things here. If... Scripture is God's word, then it alone has a sufficient authority in what? A few things. Current moral controversies, homosexuality, abortion, racism. Sola Scripture says, what does the Bible say first? Family life and marriage. Oh, Paul Tripp's uh, marriage seminar was wonderful. Why is it wonderful? Instead of giving us practical tips, psychology, pop psychology, he gave us gospel truth, which changed the paradigm. Sufficient authority in providing guidance and including even our career choices and job and moving, etc., etc., Sanctification and spiritual growth, and preaching, teaching, worship, and including social reformation. In order for us to seek social reformation, scripture teaching is the reformation is inside out, not a, ever outside in. And that inside out reformation starts with me. Third and last, I concluded with this. We are to uphold sola scriptura by submitting to what scripture says. Submitting includes not only deliberate listening, reading, meditating, but obeying as well. In our everyday life, not because it's a major decision-making time. Why? To experience the transforming power of God's word. We are to uphold sola scripture by submitting to what scripture says in our everyday life to experience the transforming power of God's word. Hebrews 4, 12 to 13. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints of, and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him. To him we must give account. Have you experienced living and active sharper than two-edged sword lately? This is one of the most treasured joy and grace that God has given us. Sola Scripture is not just obligation 
but it's a joy, that grace that God has given us. So what, what does it mean to submit? Submitting to the scripture, we, we need to deprogram our postmodern mindset. Postmodernism taught us to read into what is true for me. So Bible, at times, we could read like this. I want some joy in my life. I heard a lot of things are mentioned, the joy, where joy mentions a lot in Philippians. So I want to look for, I don't want anything else, just look for joy. And that will be absolutely wrong way of doing it. Because the Philippians are written in prison. The major theme is suffering. Without that, you cannot get joy. So contextually, we need to put ourselves in to the scripture and submit to that. Asking the intent of author, God himself, and through the human writer, there's one fixed meaning. When I have a trouble with that, I need to submit it. I need to struggle with it. I need to ask the community to help me understand whether, whether I need to change my view more. Just because I don't like it. Our postmodern attitude is that, oh, this verse, oh, I love it. Oh, this chapter, I, just, oh, I can't stand it. This submission ought to be pre-decided, meaning we need to make up our mind about sola scriptura. Because my time's up, and we need to go to the part as soon as possible. I'm going to cut out all the things that I was going to say. Let's just end with this. J.I. Packer gives us a final uh, wise exhortation for us. When the church ceases to treat the Bible as a final standard of spiritual truth and wisdom, it is going to wobble, in between, wobble between maintaining its tradition in a changing world and adapting to that world. And as the wobble goes on, go on, Uncertainty as to what is the real substance of faith and the proper way of embracing it and living, out, living it out will inevitably increase. In other words, if we don't embrace sola scriptura wholeheartedly, the drift will happen in our church as well. Brothers and sisters, I welcome your devotion, your wholehearted commitment to these five solas, beginning with this first foundational principle of the five solas. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your scripture. And thank you for uh, this battle cry for our church to pay attention to reformation 
a formal cause and the principle that lays as a foundation for our spiritual life and our church. Our prayer is that, that we will see the joy beyond obligation. We will see the freedom beyond submission. We will see the transforming power of your word in our everyday life, in our church life. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.